Welcome to Trumanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. 2021 has been a uniquely difficult year. The pandemic has continued to disrupt lives and reshape humanitarian outcomes across the world. And it's been hard not only to cope with the year, but also to make sense out of it. What does this year actually mean for us in the long run? To help me both with the coping and with the sense-making, I turned to the friends of the pod, Paula Hill by Sun and Meg Sattler. Paula is the global lead for innovation and digital in NRC, and Meg is the director of Ground Truth Solutions. That turned out to be a really good idea. Both Meg and Paula have really interesting takes on 2021 and great ideas and wishes for 2022. We had a fantastic conversation and I hope you will enjoy it. If you enjoy listening to Trumanitarian, why don't you rate us on uh, wherever you get your podcast and leave a review. It really helps us. You can also follow us on Twitter or on LinkedIn. And as always, we appreciate your feedback either on social media or on email. You can reach us on info at trumanitarian.org. Enjoy the conversation. Meg and Paula, Thank you for coming and Happy New Year. Yes, hi. Thank you for having us again, Lars. Happy New Year to you too. So we, we agreed to to have a, a look at 2021 and what kind of a year that was. And and at least for me, it has been quite a brutal year. It was it was it was a really tough year. I actually can't remember the last time I was I was this bashed at the end of the year. And I, I don't know, Meg, what what has you been your your top line takeaway from 21? Oh God, I think um. You know what? At the end of last year, I was so exhausted, which I didn't even realise until after Christmas, that I basically spent the week after Christmas unable to get off the couch. And I read this great book called Girl, Woman, Other, which I think everyone else read two years ago when it came out, but I was a bit behind the eight ball. Um, Nothing to do with the AIDS sector. But it's a really interesting book that sort of explores the lives of a number of different women, primarily black women in the UK. Um, And something that I realised when reading that was that book is very much about complexity and about how, you know, we're sort of very quick to speak in these grandiose statements and tweets and platitudes. But if you scratch the surface even a little bit, there's so much complexity that then requires you to sort of work out how you should operate within that complexity in a way that's practical. And it sort of made me realise unexpectedly that that's something that I think in the aid sector, at least at this kind of global discussion level, we've become pretty unable to do. You know, I think there's a lot of like yelling out things that sound really good, a lot of pretty basic critique. um, And I would say that that comes from myself as well. Um, But it really sort of opened my eyes to the fact that I think coming into this year, what I really want to see is a lot more practical, real discussion, even if it doesn't sound that exciting about how the sector could actually improve. Um, I think obviously accountability, I'm sure we'll get to that in a minute, but I've got a lot to say about that. Um, But I think one of the crises that stood out to me last year was Haiti again. Um, Just in the sense that I think Haiti has become this real barometer for the system in a way. You know, it's this country that has this fraught and ongoing relationship with aid. It's got various communities who are just so tired of foreign intervention. I was there after the quake in 2010, like a lot of us. Um, I was there again after Hurricane Matthew, and now we're working on it this time after this most recent quake. And it just really struck me that Haiti is so often held up in the accountability space as this turning point in accountability where we were getting it wrong and that was really blown up and everyone became aware of it and then all these great structures were put in place. And working on it now, it's just been such a hard, you know, a cold, hard lesson in the fact that none of that stuff remains and none of it really worked. You know, now in this response, it's like accountability is there because it's in the sit rep and someone's saying, you know, there's an evaluation of accountability to affected populations, but there's still no evidence that you can see of people influencing the aid effort. There's still this huge and 
warranted anger from the community, there's violence, but just purely in terms of reform. Um, I was listening after the quake to Samantha Power talk about Haiti and the money that was pledged from the US and saying, obviously, you know, this is a crisis and once we go beyond the emergency phase of food and supplies, we'll need to think about long-term recovery and development. You know, of course, she was right. But, I mean, how many times in that country has everyone had the chance to think about recovery and development and why are we still saying that as though it's an initiative? Like, when do we ever look back and say, hey, how did that recovery and preparedness and development go last time? Or, you know, what happened to all these accountability structures? Um, There's quite a lot of interesting stuff happening in Haiti at the local level, but to me it was just such a such a kind of slap in the face to everyone's efforts on accountability and a real reminder that so much of this stuff that we talk about just still sort of means nothing in a lot of these places where it really should. Um, So I'm sure we're going to go into a lot of the reasons why, but I just, that's a a crisis to me this year that stood out to me, um, just in the sort of lack of reform in the international system that was so obvious from the way that that response is being rolled out. Yeah, and I guess what you're saying is it's, it's the contrast between this inability to change and then the cyclical, never-changing reality on the ground that, that's painful. Yeah, and I think it's the fact that still, you know, we no matter what we talk about and say that we believe in and I think this is what I was sort of getting at before it's like the same things are just rolled out again and again and again even though we know they don't work even though affected people tell us that they don't work you know it's still like here's the food aid and then here's this and you'll have to line up to get it and then we'll do some cash but around the cash there's not going to be any thought or there's probably thought but there's no real evidence of how people feel that that is helping them to be able to manage their own lives. Um, And it's just the fact that we're still surprised time and time again that this is what's happening. When we use these massive machines of agencies that are sort of incapable of innovation to do the same thing again and again and just expect some sort of magical different result because we've put a few buzzwords into a sit rep is something that I think we really need to burst right open into this year. Otherwise, we're just never going to see that turning point that I think we're all quite desperate to see. Paula, what's what's on your mind? Um, so I, I love that Meg started to talk about a book because I was thinking the same. I ended um, this year finishing the the over story um, by Richard Powers. Um, which is basically a really long book about people that like trees and and, and live around trees and work with trees and basically um, not 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 to give out like the spoiler uh, but they they realized how important trees are as like beings that surround us and I've been trying to uh, kind of do a lot of a lot of learning around the the long now and being able to put things into perspective because this year has been personally really hard for me and I think it's been really hard for other people around the world but my my coping strategy has been to try to figure out how this one year fits in the long-term history of my life. So I've I've read this book and, and I've tried to understand how does the timeline of the very short term that I kind of experienced this year fits within other things that are happening around me. And I think I've been trying to do the same um, for my work. And because I, I finished the year being quite angry in terms of how people were talking about innovation and what innovation means for the sector. And, and the fact that we don't really do innovation, what we do is product development, but we don't really do innovation in terms of trying to push ourselves to think about different business models um, in the way that we deliver stuff. So I thought, okay, let's let's put things into perspective. And, and this is how I ended up the year. And I think, um, I, I don't necessarily think that everything is getting better, but I've tried to figure out what are the things that are that are in fact getting better. So for me, one of the things that stood out from last year is the fact that 
For example, Colombia is uh, granting resident rights to Venezuelan refugees. This is, this is a part of the world that is close to me, where I've worked in the past quite a lot, and this is a massive achievement. I wouldn't necessarily say that this is directly linked to any humanitarian intervention, but it's a massive step forward in a region that has struggled with this for a long time. Um, other good things, um, internet shutdowns, my friends, are going down. Maybe they're, they're being like um, extended for longer, but if you compare like the numbers from 2019 um, to, to, to 2021, we had less internet shutdowns, even though it's still like a humongous problem. Um, the Rohingyas have uh, uh, kind of sued Facebook uh, for their inability to control data. So I think there are things that are that are not necessarily moving in the sector, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the things that surround the sector and people's ability to have a better life when they're affected by conflict is not getting better. The fact that we continue to suck does not mean that the rest of the system that surrounds people's ability to cope continues to suck. No, I, I really agree with that, Paula, and, and I think the I sometimes think back at the last... Um, State of the World Humanitarian uh, System report that, that uh, ALNAP does. And I remember the last slide they did of the presentation, which basically was, the world is changing. No, sorry. The humanitarian sector is changing, but the world around us is changing faster. So I think that, that says two things. On one side, the gap between what we should be and, and what we are is, is growing and, and, and becoming bigger. But on the other hand, also, there is a tremendous amount of positive developments going on at the country level, at that granular level that you were speaking about, Mick, but it's just not because of us. And I think I think that as as a as a community, I think that what we have to come to terms with is what the heck is our role, what is our contribution, how do we get on the train? But it's also a little bit unfair to say that nothing is changing because of us, because I think sometimes. Um, we tend to think of the bigger picture at the macro level. Are, are we, as humanitarians, changing the world? Like, are we giving people what they need when they need it? The answer is no, at the macro level. But at the micro level, um, I saw maybe 10, 15 projects um, where I work that were truly inspirational and, and, and truly changed the way people live in their day-to-day -day at the micro-neighborhood level. So I think um, we also need to try to understand where is our impact intended for? Is it, is it like at the micro-boutique level where, we're, where we should be winning? Or is it the ending poverty, fighting hunger sort of level that we should be focusing on? Because I... I don't necessarily think we're doing very well by pretending that we have to be winning at both. I think you are absolutely right, Paula, and, and, and I think the crime maybe is that that's not what we pretend to, that's not the discourse. I think we, we are sort of a band-aid pretending to be a solution to, to the root causes of all the ills in the world. And I think maybe that's the problem, maybe we just have to as you said when we were warming up to this episode, embrace the suck. Just, em just embrace the fact that this is probably maybe as good as we get. Do you think that's right? I, I would never say that what we have to do is embrace the suck so fully. I think as a coping strategy, we have to embrace the suck. But as a, as a sector that, that is big, like an industry, um, it's unacceptable that that's our strategy. Like our strategy should be able to push us forward to think about new ways of delivering service and new ways of understanding how we design that service and mechanisms of accountability to, to hold us in check transparently when we are too afraid to do what we should be doing. As a sector, that's what we should be doing. I think... Um, going back to this idea of the long now, I don't necessarily see a lot of leadership in the humanitarian sector now being a good ancestor. And I would like people in, in, in this like new year to ask themselves that question. 
am I in a position of management being a good ancestor with the decisions that I'm taking in terms of how do we invest in new things? Um, how do we develop new approaches? How do I let go of this like business model that I pretend it works for me? That's what I would like. That's such an important point. And I was having a conversation the other day with a friend about the fact that when you work on specifically trying to sort of innovate or reform or catalyze some sort of change in the sector, you start thinking about different accountability mechanisms. And this friend said, well, why don't you sort of use the media more? You know, the media could really sort of bring all of this down and expose everything. And that's kind of what its role is in a number of other sectors. But I said, my worry with that is that there's such a delicate balance in the aid world, because on the one hand, you know, going back to this complexity point, you really need to reform it. It needs a massive reformation because it just is so archaic in the way that its biggest structures are formulated. But we don't want to bring the whole thing down because, as Paula said, you know, we've all met people who rely on humanitarian aid and for them it has been life-changing at various points and will continue to be. Um, And it's a bit of a delicate dance I think sometimes and again you know we sort of tend to get carried away and talk about it like everything sucks and everything external is great and why don't we draw from them more or, or whatever whereas what I think we need to do is to sort of be more realistic about what might be working what's not who do we need to listen to who do we need to bring in who's not in the space already who would sort of have more creative solutions um I was quite Thinking about this year and what was exciting for me, um, which touches on something that you've both mentioned, is this sort of rise of the non-humanitarian, humanitarian. You know, we're seeing a lot of people who are sort of activists in the humanitarian space because I think increasingly people are realising that they can't rely primarily on governments or big aid to do what needs to be done in the face of humanitarian crises. So you see these people who are really risking everything, you know, pulling people out of oceans and doing sea rescues for refugees and trying to formulate community sponsorship programs, as we're seeing in my community here. Um, And I think those groups and those people are so important because they're challenging status quos in a way that really sort of makes us all think about, you know, what does it mean to make a difference? What does it mean to be impartial? Is that even possible anymore at the moment in the face of the the rise of the far right and the pandemic, meaning that, you know, everyone's got an excuse to close their border? Um, So I think we're going to have to sort of be a bit more loose with how we define humanitarianism if we're going to be able to maximise it going into 2022. You, you both spoke about things that have given you hope this year, and, and I was thinking, okay, what gave me hope? I, I did come across a couple of spectacular individuals who I think uh, are doing really amazing work, and I, I've had a couple of them uh, on this show. But at the same time, if I contrast that to, for example, Afghanistan, a, a house of cards that just crumbled faster than we could ever have, have imagined, and, and how painful that was to see and, and and how I think bankrupt that left us after after twenty years of intervention in that country. I I I must admit I, I I'm probably pretty much at a low point uh, this this new year. I I, I, I got deeply frustrated um, when, when I saw that happen. And I also had the same sort of cyclical experience as as you mentioned uh, as you opened with the make uh, with with the typhoon Rai in, in, in the Philippines, contrasting that to typhoon Haiyan and, and just how similar it was in some of the problems that that we years after and after so much time and effort spent on that have not been able to address. And so I I am frustrated and I I, I all I agree with you though. I don't think that that we are looking at sort of a a disruptive strategy as 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 the way forward. I I don't think we can we can throw away what what is there, and it does make a, a tremendous amount of sense. But we have such a massive problem in terms of the the discourse we have. I uh, my YouTube feed 
over Christmas suddenly was full with a little WFP commercial uh, trying to persuade me to give them 80 cents per child or something. I mean, some, I mean, that whole ritual we perform around the story we tell the world about who we are just becomes increasingly difficult for me to swallow. I have to admit that. Yes, but I don't know when you talk about Afghanistan. Um, what I what I want to say is, um, have you seen the Sahel? I think it's it's not it's not like um, it's something that happened to us once and it's never going to happen again. Like look at the Sahel where we have um, military sort of forces from the UN and other countries stationed here for years, and and we have incredible, you know, instability and and inability to organize elections and commit to to plans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it's going to happen again, but. The, the the question that this kind of brings up for me is, um, is this really our business? Like, are, should we really be in the business of trying to figure out the the politics behind crisis? Or should we really be in the business of trying to understand what is it exactly that is at the root cause of people not being able to cope when those political crises materialize? So... Um, there's there's this new organization um, created by one of the one of the brains behind uh, Give Directly, where basically they have figured out that what they're going to do is they're going to take um, young people from um, disadvantaged backgrounds, and they're going to help them get into higher education. And the way they're going to do that is by helping them um, access uh, the tests and be successful at the university level but also to give them the money that you need to have parked in your account if you are ever going to have a visa for a European country, which is the equivalent of 10,000 euros. And their long-term goal here is that by educating more people, then these people will be able to go back to their countries of origin and, and be better, do better, but also to be able to bring different experiences to, to young people who are otherwise disenfranchised. I don't know if that goes back to like our traditional give me 80 cents to fight world hunger, but I think it goes back to what Meg was saying in terms of how do we understand humanitarian assistance? Because I, I'd rather invest in that level than trying to figure out how to solve like the politics of conflict that are brewing in the place, in a place like Mali, for example. If I can add to that, I think where we can get better and I think on my wish list for 2022 in terms of things to take off Twitter and put into the real world one would be this whole discussion around the nexus and what the nexus actually means and I think I was thinking about it this morning on my dog walk <laughs> just about you know we sort of we we really quick to talk about root causes um, you know root causes are things like wars and as you say, is that our business? We're not. We're not going to fix that. You know, who do we think we are if we think we should be spending our time as those who have been brought in to be the band aid to rather sort of think about those questions? But I think where we can get better is on this crossover between development and humanitarian programming, which in most places, at least the ones that I've engaged with recently, it's talked about. And there are meetings and there's a desire to improve upon it, but there's just so far to go in practical terms to sort of do what Paola was talking about where, you know, if you look at Afghanistan, for example, there's all this discussion about aid spending there and what aid is provided now and what needs to happen there and you see the appeals and it's on the news even here where nothing that's not Australian is not on the news here is on the news here. But I think, you know, they're still talking about um, this handing out the blankets and what food is required. But actually what is happening in Afghanistan now is not that people are needing food necessarily. I mean, they are, but it's because they're losing their jobs or because they're working as health workers and they're not being paid and then they're getting evicted and there's like a whole process around them that means that they're completely unable to cope as soon as a shock comes their way. That's also what we saw in COVID. You know, everyone that we spoke to pretty much in Central African Republic, in Chad, was saying the thing with COVID was that it just tipped them over the edge. 
And so whatever programming is happening there on the development side is obviously not enough. It's enough to sort of keep people going, but it's it never seems to be designed in such a way that it actually enables people to manage their lives in the face of any shock, major or minor. And I think there's a lot there in terms of country strategies that if the right people got together and stopped siloing every single facet of aid work, um, I think there's a lot there that we probably could be doing a fair bit better on. But isn't that like a lot to do with um, how we understand the problem to start with, Meg? So um, if, if you were asking those people who are losing their jobs or not being able to get a proper salary, etc., that they already have the answer. Um, it's, it's us who are constantly going back and, and saying, hmm, let me see, what can I offer here from my toolbox that I can give you? But, but this, this, the people themselves experiencing the problem, they already know what the solution is. So I think without wanting to end in the same place where, where we always end up is, um, can, can we just like listen to what they need and just give it to them? Like how hard... How hard can this business model be, seriously? No, but I think it's hard because of, I mean, if you take that as your starting point, that both of these processes or all of them, if you include, you know, peace programming or recovery or, you know, whatever silos we've created, if they all started from the place that Paola just mentioned, we become the barrier And we do that by, I mean, a very clear example is a conversation that I had with a donor um, in a country <laughs> recently. I'll try not to give too much away. Um, but we were talking about this, this idea that, you know, there's so much work going on, so much money being poured into certain places for development programming, and then there's this whole separate aid sector. They're trying to get better at working together. We were talking to them about accountability specifically and about what they could be doing. And we had this whole discussion about, well, you know, when if you take people's preferences, priorities, opinions, what they know to work, what they know to not work as the starting point, you know, how do you sort of build on what they know and what they're doing already? If everything else was to flow from that and we're going to keep the structure that we have now, at the very minimum, These two systems that we have need to talk to each other about how we're talking to affected people. And basically the response to that was, oh, no, that's way too hard. Like we will work on the nexus, but we don't know how to bring accountability to affected people into the nexus discussion. And I think that there is like at the root of almost everything that is wrong with the way that we facilitate humanitarian aid. Yeah, I agree. I I stumbled upon this uh, framework created by a, by a designer um, that I, I, I posted on, on Twitter um, where he maps out um, the different levels of design. We're not talking about humanitarian here. We're talking about design in the outside normal world. And he goes from the micro level, from like, what's the color palette that you choose to the very macro level in terms of how do you figure out what's the system in which this thing that you're designing is being inserted in. And, and I'm hoping that that's the sort of conversation that we can start to have um, so that we can understand that we're, we're designing services and products at different levels and not just because we have become experts at choosing the right education, shelter, wash, whatever color palette. Um, it means that we're getting good at trying to understand how does that fit into the the way that the system interacts with what we're what we're proposing um, to people. But maybe what we need to do going forward is to start the NGO called just give them what they need, because I don't really see any other options um, in this very big system that has incentives. Um, kind of geared towards uh, pushing forward the supply um, to be able to change. I don't necessarily see that people are interested in exploring new ways, actually. That's what, that's what innovation should be, right? Innovation should be the motor behind our new ideas for how we work. Um, and I don't necessarily see a lot of people getting excited about that. What I keep on coming back to When, when we talk about these things and when I listen to what you just said, is that if you any industry where you basically have 
between three and five providers of services and five customers buying those services is not going to be very dynamic. And for me, the, the, the key, the root problem, not of the conflicts we're dealing with, but of our inability to change as an industry, boils down to big aid, to the extreme concentration of power we have in the sector, both on the, on the side of the agencies and on the side of the donors. It is that echo chamber that we need to break. We need to, to have a more diverse uh, a more diverse sector, both in terms of where the income comes from, but also in terms of who gets the money. And it, before it's spread out more equally and before we have more diversity, it's not going to change. I, I, saw, I see so many parallels to, to the, the, the situation we find in the tech sector. I, I recently heard about an organization where uh, a, a small project had to channel uh, some money through one of the big ones, and they charged 30% just to be a mailbox for that money. That's exactly what Apple takes in the, in the App Store for any purchase made there. It's, it's just, if you are this big, if you have this much power, you're going to abuse that power and you're not going to be pushed to change anything. So I don't think we need to disrupt the sector, but we do need to diversify. We need to surround it with different organizations like the one you, you described, Paula. And, and, and from that diversity, I think that that's our only chance of changing. It's not going to change unless you change the actors. I love that. And I'm hoping that... Um, 2022 will be the year where donors uh, fund aid entrepreneurs. Yeah, exactly. We need much more of an entrepreneurial approach to these things. And Paula, you were talking about leadership, I think, earlier in the conversation. That's that's something that that's also been on my mind. I I also read a book over Christmas uh, by a guy called Thomas Vossel, uh, who was the CEO of something called Homeboy Industries in in the U.S. Uh, uh, a non-profit. What was interesting was that he came from from a background in in a in a very large as a CEO of a very large private sector company, and he reflects a lot on the type of leadership that is required in the private sector and and, and in a non-profit. And I think we, we need to talk about that. What kind of leadership do we need? What kind of culture do we need to create internally? in the organizations for us to have an entrepreneurial spirit, to have spaces where we re reward the risk takers and, and not the bean counters who are very good at, at writing reports to the donors. Another another book that I'm reading now, um, it's called The The Quiet Before. Um, and and it's it's a book that maps out the the origins of radical ideas. And I, I'm 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 reading it because I'm personally pretty desperate trying to understand um, how professionally do I position myself to make a difference. Um, I've already been on the side of the aid entrepreneurs and, and I really liked it, but it's not very sustainable. And I've already been on like the very senior position and, and that is just not tenable because organizations don't like critical thinking. Um, It's 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 hard, right? So now I'm here in the, in this level of innovation, trying to understand is this is this where we change something that I feel very passionate about, and and one of the things that I've been kind of learning from this book is that we, we tend to think of of revolutions as very loud, right? As in like people being frustrated with pans like um, banging on the streets, but but the ideas that actually fuel change and revolutionary change have traditionally been conceived in, in very quiet spaces, like small corners, right? Where, where people um, imagine uh, an alternative reality that is not necessarily very loud. It's actually very quiet, but then it seeps like, a, like an ink blot in, in water. And I'm, I'm wondering if this is where, where we need to invest more in those spaces where people start reimagining a different way of being that then becomes so, you know, pervasive that it's difficult to kill. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating, uh, Paula, and, and I agree with that. I think where what I'm thinking from, from the space I'm in is how can we how can we drive some of all of the resources from, from the big organizations towards the sort of, of uh, quiet places you're talking about where, where the thinking is happening and where, 
the the ideas are being generated, but but where there's no resource, there's no market for this. Nobody nobody seems to have an interest in actually uh, being an angel investor for new kinds of of, uh, of organizations or, or engineering these sorts of, of solutions. And I think that's what I find frustrating is that the bandwidth, the the resources are by and large sucked up by big aid, and and they are not going to to create the change we need. Yeah, but I'm wondering if if we're just getting it all wrong. So instead of fighting big aid, maybe what we should be doing is realizing that there's a lot of people that work at the micro level in this big aid industry that believes things need to be done in a different way. So how about empowering um, and resourcing those people so that they start to do small, quiet movements in the way they do stuff. Um, and eventually, that that move will be so big that it will have moved big aid. I would love to think that that would work, because I do agree with you. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not actually uh, shooting at uh, all the incredibly committed and and creative and and fantastic people who work in these organizations. What I'm saying is that what I have seen is again and again, and I, I think you have had this experience as well, the two of you, is that that maybe somebody launches something fantastic and you have hope and maybe this will change things and so on. But after a year or two, gravity sets in because the logic is, is just not that. The logic is directed towards where the money comes from. It's essentially maximizing, maximizing turnover and minimizing risk. And that it will eventually kill a lot of those good initiatives that do appear in the cracks of the big, the big system. I mean, for me, the ECB project was a good example of that. That that seemed to be able to create some interesting dynamics in in some of the biggest NGOs, and then on on some random Tuesday they decided to shut it down, and it disappeared again. I think innovation needs it needs space and it needs creativity and it needs diversity, and none of those things can happen in a sector that, as you say, Lars Peter, cannot let go of this concentration of power in global capitals and big organisations. I think we see big agencies trying to manage innovation and that's sort of important. And I know that, you know, Paolo's obviously working on that every day and it does work to an extent, but I think, I don't know, I think we have a real opportunity when it comes to innovation to actually let go a little bit and to let other people in. And I don't mean, you know, letting in shiny Harvard graduates who have an idea about a, a product. I mean, really saying, you know, we can't seem to get localization right, even by the, the metric of what percentage of money should go to local agencies. But if we just let go and said, well, let's just try that, because innovation is obviously predicated on a degree of experimentation, just try it, you know, let go of the power and the control and just push that financing somewhere else for a while and just see what we learn. Because otherwise, I think we're always going to be trying to manage this process of innovation that almost by definition can't be managed by the structures that we have in place already. And if we go back to this um, very annoying discourse of like cash as the greatest innovation, um, cash is, is now considered this great innovation because it started quietly. It's something that a small group of people starting to do differently, quietly. And it's only until 2016 that, that cash became loud. So for me, that's the thing that we have to learn about cash. Um, how does change happen in the sector? It happens quietly at the micro level, at the programmatic level. Um, I don't necessarily remember any big changes that happened because... Um, leadership very loudly decided that things were going to be different from this day forward and that they resource it properly. And Paula, you, we, we spoke about cash, which obviously has been an innovation and, and has been really transformative in, in, in so many ways. From, from your point of view, what else has been the big innovations of the past 10 years, if you want? Uh, gender, for example. It's something that is not linked to product. It's a, it's a beautiful paradigm innovation that started literally as a quiet revolution and now no one even talks about it because it's like, duh, obviously, 
Um, obviously, we have a gender expert. Obviously, we have a gender focus. But it was not a thing before. Um, I like that quite a lot. Um, I think gender is a great example of a successful pathway. And if I can be positive, maybe for the first time in, in this conversation, I actually think uh, I'm, I'm quite hopeful with respect to sort of the whole anticipatory uh, early warning, early action, uh, finding new ways of, of getting money uh, to the sector earlier. I, I think that there is uh, some real energy behind that and there's beginning to be some some concrete results coming out. So, so one of my my hopes in terms of innovation is, is actually in that space. I think there's a real opportunity. I mean, I, I I talk a lot about how, particularly when it comes to accountability, the big UN players in the aid space really get a free pass. You know, they, as we've said, they sort of dominate financing. They're not necessarily structured for accountability. The power structures within them are a bit archaic. Um, but if you flip that on its head a little bit, I think there is appetite for some sort of reckoning within that system. Obviously, the UN as a bureaucracy can be a pretty toxic place and it's not a place where structures by and large allow for innovation or creativity. But something that I am excited about increasingly, the more that I just think about the time that we exist in and a lot of global things that are coming together at once that enable people to feel that they can speak out more coupled with pressure that comes from popular movements, from the media and from social media, I think I'm actually increasingly excited about the fact that the change may come from within when it comes to the UN. I think we, and by we I mean I, have said for a long time donors need to be putting more pressure on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But actually I'm starting to think it might come from the interns who just looking at what smart young people are thinking and saying and demanding these days, they're going to want to see these big agencies being the diverse world-changing structures that they wanted to join. They're going to speak out. They're going to be probably annoying, as Paula said. Um, but I think they're going to get more and more popular support as their peers then get into media roles and politics and they get into leadership roles. And I think then with the right pressure from donors and a couple of external sources, we might see some change. And that in itself would be a huge breeding ground for innovation. I'm being very positive and maybe it's not warranted, but I just feel like that change is probably going to come at some point just because of the way that the world is going. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that the whole discourse around innovation will change in 2022 because I think COVID uh, gave us the space to think about innovation in terms of digital products and how great it is to link up innovation with digital because you can actually see the results and as a donor, you can fund it, you can bring in the private sector. But I'm hoping that we will now realize that if we don't have a more systemic perception of what we're designing, then we're basically not doing our job. And innovation at the systemic level does not necessarily have to do with product as much as it has to do with paradigm. Um, so the whole sort of um, narrative around what we celebrate and how we celebrate it in innovation in terms of what we fund and what we invest in will hopefully change. And, and that's how we will see probably more entrepreneurs, but also more intrapreneurs being supported in this big organization. Paula, could you just let us know what, what, what is an intrapreneur? So an entrepreneur is a person that works within an organization and, and has an idea and wants to pursue change, which is basically the equivalent of um, talking about all these very annoying, disruptive, critical people that work in big organizations and have almost like a, a personal project for change. I really admire your faith in the entrepreneur because I, I happen to think that the beige minds are there for a reason. It's not they didn't start out as being beige or but the the reason they, they actually rose to the level they're at is exactly that they over time became beige. And that, and that's why we have this uh, culture and these organizations. But I, I will I, I I really admire and, and enjoy your, your optimism, so I'll just shut up with my UN bashing and maybe turn the attention to, to something else, namely the organizations that, that, uh, that we work for, Meg. We are small, independent actors, ground-truth solutions and ACAPs, 
and maybe more on the entrepreneurial side of things. How, how successful have we been in being transformative and, and are we the future? It's a, it's a good question. And I think I would say it would be very arrogant to assume that we had been particularly transformational. But I think what we've done is we've been annoying at the right times and we've presented alternatives at the right times, which have made, I think, broader reform seem possible. I think we're still coming up against this whole system that we've been talking about, you know, for the past hour or so, um, that means that there's a limit to what small organisations can achieve there's also a limit to what we should achieve in a way because I think particularly when it comes to the stuff that we work on, um, you know, what we're trying to do and, and I think what you're trying to do at ACAPS is to, to show that there's a different way of doing things to make sure that the right information is getting to the right people so that they can make better decisions. But then you hope that they're going to either make those decisions or do their part of that sort of work to mean that they're getting their information from the right places, they're listening to the right people, they're changing things that need to be changed. Um, I think if I was reflecting on ground truth, I think we've had a bit of success in terms of putting certain issues on the agenda at the right levels, in terms of providing a bit of a wake-up call for when things aren't working. Um, have we reformed the whole sector? Absolutely not. I think now what needs to happen is that we continue to do our very small part, um, but we need to increasingly, I think, demand that big aid does its part on the other side so that that work becomes more meaningful. So I think that, you know, small, scrappy organisations like ours are always going to have their role. I think you need a degree of independence. I mean, we've been thinking recently about this, you know, can we... Can we claim to be independent the more that we work with, you know, for example, the humanitarian program cycle, humanitarian country teams, the system, as it were? I think you do your best and then you come up against roadblocks at a certain point and then there's really not much more that you can do after that. Um, so I think we need to sort of put much more energy into the advocacy part of what we're doing um, and not get confused with reform ourselves. Because I sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable when people say, oh, you know, you're doing accountability or you're this or you're that. And, you know, we're not. We're just sort of trying to catalyse something. But if that thing isn't willing to change, then there's really a limit to how much those things can be successful. So I guess in short, I think they are required because they... Uh, organisations like ours are small, agile, they're not bound by all of the same constraints that make these big organisations so clunky. But unless the big organisations are prepared to also change, then there's always going to be a limit to what organisations like ours can achieve. But if we go back to this um, uh, discussion about innovation, I think um, there's also almost like the gift to organizations like yours to be the great innovators. Um, because if you look at an organization like yours, Meg, um, it has been really successful because you're offering a product that people may perhaps didn't even know they needed, right? And, and they, they, they want it. I've seen it from like many different places, how successful your product is. But I'm, I'm also wondering like how um, how amazing it would be if organizations like yours, Megan, and yours, Lars, would would be the ones who are constantly innovating, right? And and giving us giving us products that we we just didn't re realize we actually needed to improve our work. And by using those products, you're changing the way we work. Yeah, I I I agree with with uh, actually what both of you said. I think. I don't think we have been transformational either. I think I think we've done okay. I think uh, we we have managed to bring some new thinking to the sector and and to a certain extent have that be adopted as as the way we do business now. Um, I think I think it's really important when when you are a small agile organization like us to to never forget that you are 
you are a complement. You, you're, you're a complementary strategy. You're not the main deal here. You are an irritant to the system or a catalyst or whatever you want to call it, and that some things can be moved forward. But at the end of the day, you are a one-trick pony for our... In our case, we sit in Geneva and write some reports or sit somewhere and write some reports. And, and it, it does have an influence, but you're not the main deal. And so I think having that, that humility is, is really important. And then, as you say, Paula, to also continue to blow yourself up and, and not fall too much in love with your own products, but, but continue to, to challenge and push the limit and understand that, that it is through the example that we can provide or the, the proof of concepts and, and the irritant part, the, the catalyst, that, that we can have an impact. But again, for me, the, maybe the most important thing is you have to know what you're not. You, you, you have to know that you're not everything and that you don't replace the, the, the mainstream humanitarian organizations. And I think you've both raised a really important point there about what organisations like ours need to be very aware of, and this is something that we're definitely thinking about for this year, is that you can't, if you have a product, and, you know, I think for, for Ground Truth, a lot of people see that product, for example, as being perception surveys, um, but that's not what you just continue to roll out. As soon as something has become sort of accepted or is a thing that more and more people want to use. I think that's the point at which a small organisation like ours, which at its heart should be an innovator because we have this space to be able to be that, um, we can't just sort of scale up a certain product because then in a way we become part of the problem. I think what we need to do is to keep pushing that envelope and saying, okay, well, if we... If our objective is about, you know, improving the way that the humanitarian sector listens to crisis-affected people, what are some ways that we could do that and what are some ways that we could work harder to make various people listen to those voices and what are things we could do to make sure that there's enough external carrots and sticks that there is some sort of incentive for any of that to happen in the first place? And I think... That's where we're going into 2022, which is very exciting because I think sometimes people assume that we're just kind of rolling out surveys, but actually what we're doing is much more than that. Um, and we really want to make sure that we're continuing to push that envelope and, you know, sometimes probably making mistakes or doing things that, that don't necessarily work. But because we have that ability to be, you know, agile or whatever the word is and and try and push things further and be an irritant. I really like that word. Um, and be a bit bolder, I think, also in what we're saying based on what we're learning from people because, again, we can be that more than you can be if you're working in one of these big bureaucracies. And that's where I think we need to keep challenging ourselves constantly and making sure that we're not just sort of perpetuating any status quo. So we've spoken a lot about 2021, but what about 2022? What would you like to see happen in the coming year? I, I think I'd like to see 2022 being the year where um, all of the disruptors come out of the closet. As in like the year where we actually not only give the microphone and the spotlight, but also like the almost like the space for people who think di differently to be able to come forward and, and get some support for those ideas. Because I think there's a lot, there's a, a, a lot of hunger at the, at the field level to do things differently on a daily basis. It's just that it's, it's hard between having to fill in the log frame, like Meg was, was saying, but also like trying to keep everyone happy um, to be able to do things differently. But I see bouts of programmatic brilliance every year people who are getting close to communities every single day so i would like 2022 to be the year where where the the character of the humanitarian disruptor is seen with the same glamour as the character of any senior leader um, because i think if we are able to like shift um, who gets to set the agenda in terms of what is new in the sector, we will we will slowly but surely move into a different place. 
as long as as I think disruptors are seen as um, uh, a pain in the butt to like follow Meg's Australian tone, um, it's going to be really hard for us to reimagine and reinvent ourselves. It's going to be really hard to actually make some of those big changes that need to happen um, at the at the micro level for them to actually have any effects on the macro level. So I'd like to I'd like 2022 not to be the year of innovation. I'd like to 2022 to be the year where we um, rethink why we invest in innovation and who are the actual innovators. I mean, I think something for me, obviously, is this um, this whole question around accountability to affected populations, which now, you know, this year and last year is really having its moment in the sun. You know, you have Martin Griffiths now coming out and saying this is going to be such a priority for him. There's a lot of people looking for answers. Um, but I think when it comes to accountability this year, I think it's really important for actually all of us to just pause and maybe get our heads out of the sand or out of our own asses. if I'm going to be more Australian about it. I think where we've gone wrong with accountability to affected people, I think we really took a wrong turn somewhere and we felt the need to define it as, as international humanitarian practitioners for our sector. And we set about saying this is what accountability to affected people means for us um, and it became this technical skill that then leaders were sort of looking to these various accountability quote unquote experts to provide them with guidance on how to engage communities and I think it all went wrong. I think I think if we thought about accountability in a normal way you know and stopped delegating this if we thought you know what are various other structures in the world like business or healthcare or democratic governments or banking or you know any sort of human system that organizes a certain type of work they have various structures in place to make them more accountable and they don't always work but the end goal of those efforts by and large is to hold people in positions of power accountable for their actions particularly when they have a lot of stakeholders in the in the general public so it's about leaders decision makers people who have been entrusted with a lot of power to do things that have implications for other everyday people. Um, and the way that they do that and the way that those structures are held to account is not singular. You know, there are various elements. There's internal checks and balances, transparency, reporting and communication, feedback from customers or constituents, communication lines with those constituents, there's audits, there's the role of the media, there's investigative journalism. And so I think what I would love to see this year is the focus shifting from this acronym of AAP or Accountability to Affected Populations as this cute little add-on by way of activities to actually understanding that accountability is not separate, whether it's accountability to affected people, accountability to donors, you know, we always say, and I think I used to say this, we're accountable to donors, but we're not accountable to affected people. But actually, we're not accountable to anyone. You know, maybe we're filling out the right forms and we're populating the right log frames and we're counting the right number of blankets and buckets and balancing the books. But how can we possibly be accountable to donors? And how can donors possibly be accountable to their taxpayers if aid is not working for those it's supposed to be helping and it's not listening to them? So I think what I really want to see this year, and I think there's some moves in that direction, um, you know, in Geneva that I'm sort of excited about, is that the problem actually now needs a power shift and it won't be addressed by all these disparate activities. I think this needs to be the year where, in parallel, voices of crisis-affected people are louder than ever, but that the behaviour of powerful decision-makers is different that they're behaving differently, that they're listening, they're responding, they're held accountable for listening and responding and co-designing and being transparent. Um, they're not just held to account for having mechanisms or doing things under this banner of this acronym of AAP. And I think this year, if we see evidence that there is actually people in leadership positions feeling that accountability is their personal problem, I think we're going to see the shift that we have been waiting for for a long time. And I'm hopeful that that may happen to some degree 
but I think there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen for it to work. But I just think that's where the sort of advocacy pressure needs to be going into this year. So I just wanted to throw that in there because obviously I had to have my accountability two cents. I'm hoping that 2022 is also the year where, where, where we put in the right measure um, our ability to change the system as a humanitarian sector. And we start to value and appreciate all of the things that are humanitarian, that can have and should have the label, that are happening around us and despite us. Um, so that we can almost use them as a trampoline instead of constantly trying to defend um, who gets to own the values and who gets to own the label of humanitarian. Because there's, there's so many good and cool things that are happening around people that it's, it's a wasted opportunity when we're not celebrating, applauding them, riding those waves and, and kind of enabling more impact. And Um, it made me think of that because I'm, I've got like in my hands this brand new book um, uh, that is called Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket, um, which is a, a collection of stories by um, Hilma Wolitzer, which is this amazing feminist. Um, and they're just like stories about people's, people's lives and, and, and the stories of women's lives. And I think... Um, I'm, I'm going to try and understand in 2022 how how to focus on the on the micro um, to see whether that investment at the micro level can actually produce bigger change. Not only in terms of of me and how I approach my own life, but also in terms of how I support innovators that I I work within my organization and outside. I think for me, what I would love to see this year is, I think, a focus on leadership and culture inside the organizations. I think that speaks to some of, of the things the, the two of you have mentioned. I think we need to be bolder, as, as we said. I think we need to, to push it and be less afraid of, of being unpopular, of not getting the promotion or whatever. I think everybody in this sector has a space and has some buttons they can push. I think we should push them and be bolder and less worried about what happens. And then more at the institutional level, I, I would hope that that we begin to understand better what we are not what we're not good at. Because if we if we understand our weaknesses and our limitations, then we will naturally seek out partners who can complement our weakness. And I think it is it is true that collaboration between fundamentally different actors that we can create some value and that we can create some some of that energy we need to to drive us forward so so for me leadership boldness uh, collaboration and and a bit of institutional humility would be really fantastic and then i am really excited about anticipatory analysis i think i think we will see some development there and 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 maybe a shift in in the financial model or beginning shift in the financial model which could be quite transformative and then i want to go out and find some new friends uh, in the sense that i want to find some 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 people i don't know who who are doing really exciting stuff because paula you you're absolutely right they are out there and they are already working on the solutions and i want to connect with them so that that's what i hope for 22 I, I think 2021 was the time for our our self-indulgent tweets and our platitudes. And I think let's make 2022 the year of really trying to turn them into some sort of imperfect, practical solution or way of doing things differently. And if we can't do that, rather than just endlessly talking about it, let's try and find someone who can. And I think that's where we really have the opportunity now to sort of look to different voices and different actors and really try and make this the year that so many new brains and voices come into this sector and just try and make it what it needs to be in the face of this absolutely overwhelming need. Thank you, both of you, for for coming on, on, on the show and, and having this conversation. It's been very therapeutic for me, at least. I feel ready to face 2022 in some shape or form. One theme that I think we have had throughout this conversation, and, and you started off with it, Meg, and in a sense, uh, Paula, you, you just brought it up again, is this link between the global and the, the, the local, the micro level, the, the concepts, and then 
the actual context of, of how do we engineer more concrete solutions. So, so what I'd like to do is to invite you to come back to the, to the show, to True Minitarian over the course of the year with some concrete examples of, of what we actually managed to do in terms of innovating and pushing this forward so that, that it won't just be this sort of top-level stock-taking that we've done today, but actually some concrete examples of progress that we can see and that we are excited about. And so if you're game, I, I'd love to have you come in a couple of times over the course of the year to, to, to discuss the progress that we're making. I'm absolutely game for that because I think having a space to put forward and new areas of investment or new people you should be talking to um, is, is part of this like humanitarian spring that we've been talking about. So absolutely game and thank you for the invitation, Lars Peter. Yeah, thanks so much again for having us as usual. Um, I think we really enjoy these conversations. Mainly, I think for me, it's also because you sort of challenge your own thinking, particularly when you work for small organisations like mine that sort of does a certain thing and it's easy to to get quite swept up in the technicalities of that. So it's great to, to chat and get some bigger picture ideas going. So thanks very much to you both and big happy new year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's about the rights and the freedom to be For people to choose their path in life and dream Souls of men beyond what you see Stages are different for each who will lead Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks Fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets Ask better questions, pick apart, educate And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate We are, we are searching for more Open up your mind beyond rich or poor for the truth, you've been warned, humanitarian. <laughs> <laughs>